apparently calling the podcast rolled up and using a burrito for the logo has caused some confusion. You all thought I was talking about marijuana cigarettes or joints, if you will. Damn, I was in that shit, man. I never had no dope like that before in my life, man. That's the heaviest shit I ever smoked, man. I mean, I smoked a lot of shit before, man. But goddamn, man, that's heavy shit. Well, today I am. I'll be talking to Colin Landforce about the cannabis industry and how he got started selling in bulk to more premium products and is on pace to do $69 million of revenue this year, which is pretty nice. All right, all right, all right. I'm also talking to Jamie Sutton, who is an e-commerce veteran and has seen everything sold from hair clips and phone cases to CBD supplements and the regulations which have gotten a lot of people in trouble and sent to prison, wrongfully so. Including Paul McCartney, who really doesn't need any introduction. But somebody had to introduce him and the Beatles to cannabis. In fact, it was fellow rock star Bob Dylan, who rolled a joint, passed it to the the group, and Ringo, not knowing you were supposed to pass it along, just smoked the whole thing to himself. Since then, the times are a-changing, and you can now buy cannabis in drinks, edibles, and even have someone like Colin roll your joints for you. I'm lifelong serial entrepreneur, professionally post-college that kind of manifested itself as doing a lot of growth consulting and marketing consulting, both small businesses and global brands. And uh, at some point there, um, I kind of got got tired of, of that hourly billable grind. A handful of guys that I grew up with, like literally our, you know, our moms lived down the street from each other, were at uh, what was then one of the largest cannabis brands that there is. They left that company. My time at my previous gig was winding down. And uh, I jumped over, started selling weed with my friends. Uh, we're about to close our second round of M&A here and be public. That's the origin story and, and how I got started. And like you said, I'm a product and marketing oriented uh, entrepreneur. So that is our life here. This CPG episode that everybody has been wanting me to do, because apparently my logo looks like a pre-rolled marijuana cigarette or <laughs> joint, if you will. I didn't know about that until I someone sent it to me. Can't believe I was so so naive. But joining me today is Colin Landforce, and Colin is the he's an entrepreneur, he's a girl dad, and he's grown his CPG company, Unraveled Brands, which sells cannabis from zero to sixty nine million dollars in revenues, which I think is pretty nice. And forty two cents, excuse me. So. Colin, thank you so much for joining me to wrap up the season. We're going to be talking about jars, joints, gummies, cookies, and carts in this episode of Roll Up. Great. Thanks a lot for having me, Lucas. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to talking about a bunch of CPG. Me too. And I think that that's one thing which is really interesting is at the end of the day, we can make all the jokes we want. We can have as much fun with it as we want. But you are selling CPG, which is highly competitive it can be tight margins, so you need to do a lot of volume. And with cannabis, there are just so many regulations, which you wouldn't even think of from, and we're talking in the green room about how you have to do the same thing, but because the rules are a little bit different in each state, it's just looking at the same thing 50 different times. And that's what got us connected was a thread you did on Twitter talking about just different packaging styles and regulations. So I'd love for you to walk me through and, and just share with the listeners visually 
what some of the different ways are to buy cannabis when you you go into the legal legal store from deli style, which makes sense, but I had never heard of, to pre-rolled, to everything else which you produce. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Hopefully I did the intro all right. If there's anything that I missed, let me know. And I would love to, to get started with just what are the different types of, of options that vary from state to state? Well, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. And something that I like to think about is the parallels between cannabis and booze. They, they definitely fall apart at some point. But I think if you think about it in terms of, you know, you had a moonshine era and then you have 100 years later or whatever it is uh, you mm -hmm. have today where we've got wine spritzers and white claws and and everything in between. And right now we're very much in the, you know, maybe it's the second or third inning if you look at it that way of cannabis. So yesterday it was bulk flour and uh, a lot of backyard science. Mm -hmm. Right now we're, we're getting into early days of innovation on everything from extraction to packaging, like we're gonna talk a lot about. And uh, the future ultimately is purebred CPG, which is not anything new. Uh, there's certainly a lot of nuance uh, and layers to it, though, given both agriculture in general, as well as uh, cannabis and compliance and regulations and how fragmented all those things are and what we do. So let's start with the where the consumer is today and, and work backwards, because you've shared a lot of interesting insights from uh, when harvest season is more competitive to what you just mentioned with going from the moonshine era to a pure play CPG era. Yeah. When you walk into the store and let's say you want to buy the same thing. So seven grams of cannabis. What are the different ways that you can buy this legally? And then w w of those, which ones are not as legal in, in some places. So if it might be legal in Oregon, but not necessarily legal in New Jersey or New York or Las Vegas, et cetera, where other states where it is legal. Sure. So, I mean, flour is the first place probably everyone's head goes or maybe joints. Mm -hmm. And then just, I guess, a quick recap of those categories. You've got flour, which is literally bud. You've got pre-rolls, which is a derivative of that, a very close one, obviously. And then mm -hmm. once you start extracting and doing concentrates, you get into the next tier of, of product. And that's everything from uh, from concentrates and extracts that are, are meant to be dabbed or inhaled all the way to these are the inputs for your gummies, your brownies, your drinks, cartridges that are also inhalable and everything in between, right? So starting with flour, there's a wide array of how that is served and bought by consumers. Mm -hmm. The moral of the story, like I mentioned, is this fragmentation between states. I think something, a big parody that we deal with is we currently operate in, in Oregon and California. And in California, regulation says that two consumers at retail flour has to be packaged in a prepackaged jar, right? Makes sense. It's, it's very much CPG leaning. In Oregon, there is no such regulation. Other states, that is also the case. So as a note to that, 90, I don't know the actual numbers. I would say 99% of the flour sold in the state of Oregon is what I would call deli style. Mm -hmm. So you walk into a store, there's a row of jars, um, and then your, your flour is picked out of that jar and put in a container and you walk out with it. That is not exactly CPG, right? It, it, it's the opposite of. And so yeah. that's a, you know, a, a big initiative for us in the organ market is pushing into prepackaged flour for that reason. Uh, because when we're selling a, a retailer 
uh, flour that goes deli style, we're pretty much brokering a commodity, right? There's certainly like some clout around farms and that, but really it's like we are, it's a commodity at that point. When we can get it into a jar, now our brand is going home with a consumer. Uh, hopefully they come back for it next time. Uh, all the good stuff that comes along with being a brand. And so that initiative is a, is a huge one for us. I don't want to misspeak too much, but other states allow both. I think the future is just packaged just because I think that's the way that the world works, right? Following other industries. I think it's more consistent. I can't really see, and I'm just trying to think of what products other than meats are really served up deli style. And it's not a lot, maybe fountain pop, but I can't see people wanting to just have like loose flour dispensed to them. Big picture, it may end up one of those things where like I can go to a growler store and fill my growler off of a keg. Mm -hmm. um, but 90% of the beer that's bought and sold is in the refrigerated aisle at the grocery store. 99.999% right. Right. really only hipster weed is going to be sold by, by deli style in the, the future, presumably the, the folks buying that way are going to ultimately be a uh, hyper connoisseur, um, or maybe experiential, like a wine tasting, that kind of a scenario. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm stuck on flour there. But then in terms of, of regulation, right, uh, I think Alabama's passing medical. You know, what is actually allowed is like kind of ridiculous for someone that actually wants to use this uh, to their benefit. And I'm not an expert on all the different state regulations because there's like 50 sets of rules to, to follow. But uh, I think the moral of the story is it is super, super fragmented. It definitely sounds sounds that way in here. In Canada, everything is very, very prepackaged. That's one of the biggest complaints about the legal market is there's just so much plastic involved to to get your products. You see people who order a, a joint online and it comes with just boxes and plastic to shrink wrapped and everything. Yep. Which is it's a bit stereotypical, but cannabis users tend to be or cannabis consumers tend to be a little bit more environmentally conscious than than others. So you send someone a natural product that's wrapped in plastic. It's not really the, what they're, they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, a lot of that is around uh, child resistant mm -hmm. uh, regulations, which obviously make a ton of sense. But, but when you have a CR requirement that, that pretty much forces you into that plastic box, uh, so to speak, and there, of course, are, you know, there are some cardboard solutions for CR. Uh, we're seeing more and more hemp solutions. And the reality is that a consumer wants, they want something that's more sustainable. Uh, but if it ends up on the shelf for a dollar more because of how much more those components cost, it's a no-go. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as with anything, consumers ultimately speak with their dollars. And I think everybody cringes and then speaks loud and clear that it's not a huge priority, unfortunately. It is unfortunate, but... That's a good time to segue into your story a little bit. And you mentioned that when you sell just flour, which is how you got started, uh, the thumbnail picture I'm going to use is most likely you holding two giant <laughs> garbage bags of of flour, which is you look like you can barely hold it up. So you're holding your weight in flour. <laughs> and then you really pivoted to to pre-rolled. And so you had started your background in, in CPG and you you launched your first pre-roll called Sticks beautiful name, beautiful branding. And then you, you expanded into a more premium line, a more budget line. How has the business changed from starting with just flour into the different products? Yeah. I mean, so I think it's exactly that early days were flipping packs. Um, and I think that a core part of, of what we did in the beginning was creating a network of retailers. Mm -hmm. Like I said, in Oregon, it's all deli style. 
and that initial need, especially in the early days, right? It starts with flour. And uh, so creating that network and then knowing that you can ultimately, uh, you can sell in almost anything once you have distribution. Distribution is the hard part. So uh, the first step, like you mentioned, was pre-rolls. And that was largely because really to this day, you go into a dispensary, a, a retail store, and you buy a joint. Mm-hmm. And it's a coin toss if it's going to be any good. You know, you might have a good joint and be able to smoke it. Uh, it might run down the side. It might not light. It might not stay lit. All the above, right? And and that's that's largely because, especially early on, uh, pre rolls or you know a byproduct. Uh, it's the the bottom of the jar that the shop jammed into a joint, or it's uh, you know the farm that grew the weed had had some leftover smalls and jammed it into pre rolls. And so we started with the joint uh, in an effort to make a joint that was just consistent, that was just the same every time that you could go and buy and know that you were going to have a joint to smoke at the end of the day. And uh, for us, that that started with a very methodical approach. And, and we we imported a hop milling machine for beer, for hops. And that's a for anybody familiar with, with weed, uh, it's a $25,000 grinder. Uh, but what that allowed us to do. Because <laughs> I'm looking up hop milling machine. What does this this look like? And I, I see it now. It's the, the little pellets that, that end up coming out of it. And yeah, it looks like a, a giant giant grinder to just make it consistent with a who with a hopper right again going for consistency the two variables in a pre-roll are the materials size and then how you pack it and so we got a fritch the company's fritch and they've entered the cannabis space i think largely for processors who are preparing material to run extract but what that allows to do is consistently create different particle sizes and so between particle sizes coming out of the mill and then a couple different density variations on the pre-roll itself, we created a bunch of little test packs with, uh, I think we, we started with 12 variations and we smoked a lot of joints and our friends smoked a lot of joints and bud tenders we knew smoked a lot of joints. And then we had a form that they would get on and enter, great, I just smoked uh, variation E, uh, here's how I scored it, next. Wow, so it's almost like wine sommelier. Of, of grading it, scoring it, yeah, it's, just looking for you know what we're we're all in consensus that this harvest, this grind is the most enjoyable. The the notes that came out, right? Did it burn well? Did it run? Did it resin up? Those types of things, and uh, it was really just some good old fashioned A B testing, mm-hmm. and we came out the other end of it with very clear, great. This is how to make a good joint. You know that formula worked for outdoor material mm-hmm. primarily that is uh, less resinous and just easy to work with when you go and do uh, indoor material uh, that's covered in trichomes and super high THC content. It didn't work. So we had to take another pass at it and do it again. And so where, where we ended was a couple different brackets of material that got two different recipes. And we've made you know millions and millions of joints along those guidelines since uh, all up and down the West Coast. Wow. That's just so fascinating for really such a simple product that everyone's familiar with at this point. Nobody's unfamiliar with right. with a joint or that process. Another question that I have for you is, and you mentioned the extract and outdoor versus indoor. How do you get from from your your buds and your flower to the extracts that can be used for into capsules, cartridges, edibles? How do you get from, from point A, which I think most people can see, which is the flower. I think we, we can figure out how it goes from flower to joint. I think some people might know how it goes from flower to 
uh, either in, in something fat or alcohol soluble and into a candy or, or a gummy. But how do you get everything out from the various extracts that, that you've mentioned? Because I just, you may have alluded to it, but it's it's like magic to me. You could tell me that there's, oh, we just take the cannabis and then we we put it in this box. We say some magic words and then it comes out. Because I have no idea how you go from a, a flower that's grown to the cartridge that's inhaled. Well, I'll start with the caveat that I'm not an expert on uh, extraction or concentrates, but I'm wide and deep on my knowledge here. So like many things in this industry, extracting from plant matter is not not a new idea, right? Mm -hmm. uh, essential oils come to us this way, uh, among other things. So uh, there's several different methods. You can do solventless or, or with solvent. So solvents would include CO2, BHO, ethanol, et cetera. And uh, you're literally extracting, right? So the the first pass of that uh, gets you crude oil. And this is, you know, you're going to go from plant matter that's probably 10 to 20% THC to dark, ugly, crude oil that's probably, you know, 35 to 55% THC. And then from there, based on what you want to do with it, you start distilling. And so if you get to three pass distillate is effectively, you know, THC juice that is largely flavorless a lot of the time. Um, and it's your inputs for an edible. It can be the starting point for a cartridge if you're going kind of the more uh, run-of-the-mill distillate-based cartridge. Again, lots of ways to get there, but a full-spectrum oil or concentrate is something that doesn't have all the fats and lipids and every last thing stripped out of it and preserves terpenes and all those good things. And that is oils that do taste and smell like weed. And those are typically consumed that way, right? So if I run a bunch of plant matter to distillate, probably I'm going to add it to something or add something to it uh, before it gets to consumption. When I'm doing either solventless or with solvent uh, concentrates and extracts that are full spectrum, that's the way that it's going to be consumed, right? There's the, the consumer that wants an OG Kush cartridge that they can taste the terpenes uh, and other cannabinoids in it which is a, a different a different product, a different consumer from somebody that wants to eat a gummy that they only want to taste strawberry. They don't want to taste yep. weed. They, they want to taste strawberry. And in about 45 minutes, when their friend asks, hey, are you feeling it? They want to say, yep. Or they will not reply because they're asleep. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then something that's interesting right now that we're seeing in the organ market is kind of a, a wave of full spectrum edibles. So you've got like gummies that are being made with hash rosin, and uh, other interesting things that are more premium products. So these are edibles and gummies that are full spectrum that do have those flavors and those tastes in them. And all those things, you know, get you a, a different end result. I think one of the most interesting things about cannabis is the entourage effect, which is, you know, described by scientists whom I am not as like the combination of the cannabinoids is what gives the effect those cannabinoids affect everyone very, very differently. And then the combinations of them do as well. So THC is a cannabinoid. There are, I think, you know, hundreds of other ones in cannabis, not to mention terpenes and terpenoids and all this stuff. And again, I'm, I'm not the, the one to talk about that, but uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating plan at the end of the day, for sure. So as you've expanded Unrivaled brands, you, you have expanded the line into different products. So you have six are your value. Cabana is your premium. What does your current product lineup look like? So a uh, couple of years ago, we did our first round of M&A with Crova. Crova is 
uh, was and is one of the top five brands in California. Mm-hmm. And again, this is pretty far gone at this point. But for me and my part of the story, that introduces a third brand, a third like core brand into the mix. And for us, that is our 800 pound gorilla. So it starts with Corova. Uh, Corova made its name doing thousand milligram edibles, which those are, that is not compliant in the rec market. Um, <laughs> they're alive and well in Oklahoma and Arizona via licensing partner right now, but uh, we don't get to use that as a flagship in California and Oregon anymore. So Corova's footprint is flour, cartridges, extracts are a big push for us right now, as well as um, some derivative ed- edibles from the thousand milligram black bar day. So many cookies are that those, you know, take advantage of some of the flavors and some of the recipes from the old days without, without doubling as a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> it's good. It's good. If you have a, a flight to Japan or something, you just want to wake up in another dimension. Right. Exactly. Um, so Crove is the 800 pound gorilla, uh, spans across, you know, all the core categories. And then after that, you've got sticks. And I think of sticks as our Bud Light. It's a value brand. That means it is, it's filled with sun-grown material. Mm-hmm. And uh, that spans across pre-rolls. Uh, we're doing some infused things. So uh, infused pre-rolls, infused moon rocks, uh, as well as cartridges um, and flour. Uh, so again, jars of flour eights, which are uh, are new to the organ market. And then um, you've also got cabana. When I talk about you know developing the pre-roll recipe, the first one was sticks, outdoor material. And then the second one was cabana because we meant to make some indoor pre-rolls with uh, some amazing indoor material and it did not work out. And so we had to go back to the drawing board on that more resinous, uh, more finicky material and out came Cabana. And so Cabana is is a high end, small batch, a little bit of variation across the two markets, but uh, it's one of my favorite of our brands just from an aesthetic feel. And uh, right now it is flour and pre-rolls. It's easy to extend product lines and all these. And I think uh, a lot of people that are doing what we do have a brand. We have four and uh, we don't need any more things to do at any point. So Cabana is like in a nice little sweet spot with pre-rolls and flour. The last thing that I wanted to hear about is the difference between outdoor and indoor. You've referenced it a couple of times that the indoor grown cannabis is stronger, more potent, more, more, more resiny and sticky outdoor or under the sun. Maybe it's a little bit more natural for lack of a, a better word. What's the difference between uh, cannabis that's grown outside versus inside and the the impact that might have on, on markets during, throughout the year? Well, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect, right? Outdoor is grown with the sun outside, pretty purebred agriculture. Indoor has, you know, the concept is le- at least is a perfect growing environment. So when you're inside, you've got perfect control over the lighting. You've got perfect control over the temperatures. You are controlling every drop of uh, nutrients and water that feed the plants. And all that control leads to incredible product, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, For the same reason that you see commercial agriculture move towards greenhouses, right? Nobody's growing a tomato inside, I don't think, but there are a lot of tomatoes being grown uh, inside big commercial glass greenhouses to add an an additional layer of control. And that control is what ends up with uh, the higher quality product. That makes sense. And the, the tomato analogy is, is a great one because I think everyone's familiar with, with tomatoes and hothouse tomatoes throughout the year. When it comes to the harvesting 
or cultivating uh, of cannabis. Is there a better time of year to buy as a consumer? Is it better in the fall, like any other harvest? Right. When it's fresher, maybe there's just more on the market, so you have more choice, maybe better prices. As a, as a consumer, what should we be looking for when we when we purchase our cannabis? Well, like you just said, everybody that's growing outside has the same is on the same clock, mm-hmm. uh, right? So when you're outside, you don't get to decide when your light cycles change and when the plant completes its flower. So that means that outdoor all comes down at the same time uh, and more or less hits the market at the same time. So every fall, uh, I think it's affectionately known as croptober uh, in cannabis. You know, that mid to late fall is when all the crops come down. Uh, then, you know, go into curing and trimming and then ultimately are available uh, to hit the market. And that has pretty typical supply and demand mechanics involved with it. You've got a flood of product that drives down prices, you know, directly on that product, of course, because prior to that, uh, anything in that tier, that price tier was was stuff that was a holdover from the previous. And then naturally, that influx is also going to affect other categories, whether it's derivative or parallel. So when all of the outdoor material comes down, that means that the the trim and byproduct that goes into a distillate also is coming down in a flood. And that means that uh, the price of distillate goes down and distillate is what makes your edible. Um, so the long game on that is it affecting edible pricing. And I think that every market, since the markets are fragmented, they're all going to experience this relatively independently. But that's what we see. And I think as you get a couple years into the market and the market matures a little bit, then the waves from that uh, steady out and it probably becomes less and less apparent to consumers. Mm-hmm. But uh, I drive by a store on my way home every day that's got $5 eights. I don't know how they pull that off. Obviously, it's a loss leader for them, but it's a direct byproduct of of you know some of the initial recreational floods that happened and then them trying to maintain that status quo for consumers. Another interesting dynamic with the state specific markets is Southern Oregon and Northern California is one of the best climates in the world for growing cannabis. A state like Michigan doesn't have that in their backyard, right? Uh, which is going to create entirely new dynamics on on the flower market because outdoor trim is is what fuels distillate. And uh, again, I'm, I'm less familiar with some of these other markets, but you don't have that outside Detroit. <laughs> that being said, there's, there's good climates for it uh, in the South. And on the other coast, but definitely we're, we're in a u- unique position on the West Coast and, and it's why product here is so good. It's like people have been doing this out here for uh, as long as they've been out here uh, with medical programs in Oregon, California. They've been doing it legally for 20 or 25 years. And uh, I think ultimately as, as <laughs> it, it does make improvements. Yeah, right. Incremental gains from season to season a lot easier when you, you can leave a paper trail of what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, like being able to come out of the closet with it is definitely helps it come a long way. But I think as it goes federal, I think like, you know, the Southern Oregon, Northern California is going to become like one of the largest supply regions for the entire country because of that. And the reality is they already were that, right? It's just illicit. My last question for you, Colin, is how did you get into the the cannabis space? I know that you were in CPG before, what did your your journey look like from traditional CPG? What were you doing there into what made you take the leap to get into cannabis? Yeah, so I'm lifelong serial entrepreneur. Professionally, post-college, that kind of manifested itself as doing a lot of growth consulting and marketing consulting, both small businesses and global brands. And uh, at some point there, um, I kind of got got tired of, of that hourly billable grind 
and uh, jumped on board with uh, one of my clients full time uh, to launch consumer drones globally. So uh, in that journey, we took a, a hobbyist drone company and took it full consumer electronics wow. and launched it into Best Buys and you know 2,200 stores all over the world. And then uh, as that was winding down, a handful of guys that I grew up with, like literally our, you know, our moms lived down the street from each other, were at uh, what was then one of the largest cannabis brands that there is because, again, Oregon is one of the only markets with, with medical programs that were alive and well. And uh, as the story goes, they left that company. My time at my previous gig was winding down and uh, I jumped over and uh, started selling weed with my friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot has changed since then. People have come, people have gone. Uh, we're about to close our second round of M&A here and be public uh, very, very soon here in lieu of that. Um, but that that's the origin story and, and how I got started. And like you said, I'm a product and marketing oriented uh, entrepreneur. So that is our life here. Besides solving problems and, and, uh, and, and building the business, uh, it's product, it's marketing, it's brand. And uh, cannabis is the vehicle for that. That's how I got here. Wow. What a great story. Colin, is there anything else that you want to add? Where can people find you? Where can they buy your products if they want to smoke some, if they don't want to roll up their own or or if they do, where can people find you? Product wise, we are all up and down the West Coast, uh, Oregon, California, Washington coming uh, in August, I believe. Um, so go to your local dispensary. They probably have it. If they don't, tell them they should. And then for me personally, uh, I'm, I'm big on Twitter. I'm doing the Twitter thing. My username is Landforce, L-A-N-D-F-O-R-C-E. Uh, it's my last name. I know it's a weird one, uh, but that's how you find me everywhere. Come say what's up. I'm always answering questions, talking about weed, showing off pictures of product that we've got in the warehouse and uh, what we're doing. Jamie, it's five o'clock. It's quitting time. If you have something rolled up in your listing, may as well enjoy that now. Jamie and I both have a drink and we've talked a bit on this season of rolled up about cannabis and alcohol. Jamie, we've seen a ton of changes over the last decade. We saw Drizzly get bought up, talked to Paul Miller with his craft cocktail startup in this episode about cannabis and the different types of packaging. We Talked about blister packaging in a previous episode and the environmental impact. That's been a huge, huge criticism of legal cannabis is that it comes in 8 million layers of packaging and you have to open it up versus a a piece of paper and a plant. It's making something that is by nature very eco-friendly, very uneco-friendly. So Jamie, hey, what are you sipping on? Um, so I am drinking a Kostringer Kolsch. So cheers. Cheers. One thing that, uh, that's changed is the, the rise of cocktails and, and craft cocktails at home, and especially during pandemic with, with bars closing and the availability to get them. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, I am in a state that still has some uh, antiquated delivery laws. I can't even get Instacart deliveries uh, with beer or wine, but I do really appreciate states that do. <laughs> so when I'm traveling, it's rather interesting to kind of see because it is very fractured with mm-hmm. kind of how the industry is compliant in 
one state, sometimes in one county versus another county at the, the zip code level and what brands have to do to, you know, make sure that they are compliant at any given time. Yeah. And unlike Canada, we're also kind of split on the age as well. In Canada, you guys are 18. Uh, we are largely 21 here in the States. So that uh, adds some different layers of like regional and local compliance as well. Yeah. We're 18 for in some provinces, I think Quebec, Alberta, Maybe some other ones. And then the rest is 19. Okay. But lottery is 18. Tobacco is the same as, as alcohol. I think tobacco in the States is is 18. And then you can drink at 21 technically or legally is a better word. Correct. That's not even including cannabis. I think a lot of people, you know, praise the farm bill for going through, but it's actually added less clarity than more clarity and definitely some mixed messaging. CBD is advertised everywhere, but it's unmarketable across certain channels because the law is very much loose and, and fast. Some friends here in South Carolina who, who now grow hemp, South Carolina Farm Bill, but there's different rules about where they can have their raw material processed. Early on, they were driving over the border to North Carolina to have it processed because of some of the, the, the weird oddities. And I think certainly when it comes to kind of normalization, we're, we're seeing almost a, a cascading effect from a state-by-state -state perspective, um, but there is like no standardization whatsoever. Like I love the, that, uh, you know, someplace like DC passes a decriminalization, um, but there's nowhere to buy it. Um, so as a result, you have people who are, you know, giving away free marijuana with their and a large pizza <laughs> um, just like skirt around the, 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 the weird free pre-roll with this $9 bag of chips. Yeah, exactly. So I think at some point it's, it's going to have to be figured out. Clearly Mexico is trying to figure this out right now, but in the meantime, those who are, you know, selling you know, CBD full spectrum and, you know, in the States where it is legal, but it's not federally legal. Everybody's still struggling here. Um, and I mean, how many years in are we, uh, on California passing medical. So we I don't feel like we've progressed a ton. We have from, from a regional cascade perspective, but when it comes to having clear and, and easily understandable uh, roles and regulations, we're no better than we were um, at the start. Which is just so much to unpack of medicinal, decriminalized, legal with purchase. It's just so weird all the the different things yeah from a logistic standpoint as well it can be be a big issue if you're shipping even cbd which is more more legal there are carriers that just don't want to to touch it or anything and and compliance have you seen anything in the industry with emails or sms just being burned through or any regulatory compliance shocks that that listeners might be interested to to know about little nuggets so I think it's pretty clear now the carriers are really clamping down on anything CBD. Or previously, it was it's going to work until you get flagged. But anybody who has you know uh, CBD in their domain name, like they're kind of stopped before they even start. So I think email's still pretty good. You got to have you know clean list. The advice I would give is like be creative with the way that you write your copy your subject lines, think about what your domain name is and whether that's going to get you 
flagged. And it's sometimes very nebulous as to what gets anything flagged. But I think the, the move really going forward is uh, until there's something that's federally mandated, the carriers are basically kind of locking this down. So really, I think where that leaves us is with the, the standbys, um, which is email, push notifications, and probably to less extent, but physical. I think that it's in Toronto every every block has at least two dispensaries. And just the question is, how, how do they stay open? Yeah. When there's just so much choice, why are people coming to you or still buying the way that they always have by, by texting their guy? I have a, uh, an ease accountant. It would be interesting to me. I, I subscribe to a lot of, of SMS. Some brands were able to get their SMSs through the one, the kind of pattern match for a while was they just never mentioned what they were SMSing about. It was like, Oh, but, you know, $20 in your account, come spend it today. Um, and, or, you know, something that, that was very kind of sublime, right? But even that has uh, stopped now. So I'm not sure kind of even kind of on that larger scale, if they're, how they're, they're handling that, but it's certainly going to make for some challenges on the marketing side. And I think it's uh, now a challenge for text. It's now a challenge for display. Uh, it's now a challenge for SMS. So I think what this points to more and more is, you know, relying on the email channel and, you know, making sure that you are doing everything you can from a branding perspective. And we're seeing it with more and more celebrity collaborations like Seth Rogen with his company Houseplant doing almost really out there stuff. Did you see his retro car lighter? No, I didn't. So it's, it's beautiful. It's like a, a brick of marble. And, you know, like a car cigarette lighter when cars came with cigarette letters that you'd push in and then you'd pull out. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like a desktop one, one of those. And you can talk about that product oh, wow. all day long. Then you see the Seth Rogen cannabis, which you know is a houseplant brand, even though it's there's clearly a, a demarcation point there. I think where it's going to go from an acquisition perspective and, and the only way, well, at least like the last good channel that I see is through through influencer and social media podcasts, really well followed entities uh, on on our social channels that are doing shout outs. Everything else is kind of getting clamped down from the acquisition perspective. I think that that's one of the the powers and the joys of podcasts is that it's pretty much an unfiltered channel. You can say whatever you you want, for better or for worse. You can go out there and just start a podcast. I could make the logo green and just have. The, the rolled up podcast where I talk about different strains of cannabis and that's doable and how that really goes through. Any other closing remarks on the, the alcohol industry, cannabis, CBD, that you, where you think the, the trends are going a decade from now? I think that the trends will go much more in the, the way of uh, marketplace, especially from like a small vendor perspective. You got to look at what marketplace environment takes off of their plate <laughs> from a, a liability and um, a compliance perspective. So, you know, wine selling platforms, for instance, alcohol selling platforms, local delivery, but it is pushed through a, a marketplace, I think is really going to be what opens this up and some of the, the cloudiness around what can I do versus what can I not do? I think it's going to be that in co-op style environments that help uh, kind of democratize some of the way that product is, is marketed 
delivered and you know retained from a loyalty perspective. Yeah, I think so too. And we're we're seeing it here how cannabis was first rolled out with the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is uh is is on on Shopify, and it's mm-hmm. all the different brands can can go and there are accessories and there's new product discovery there. It just makes it so much easier, especially when the average cart value is going to be a little bit smaller than what's typically sold for e-commerce. If people just want to spend 20 to 30 bucks on some, some cocktails or cannabis, that gets really hard from a logistics standpoint, unless they're bundling it with something else or has some economies of scale. And I think this is clearly, you know, hunting packs. <laughs> Uh, especially if you, if you are a smaller vendor or you're, you're just creating a brand in this space, um, you're going to need a lot of help. And I think that the co-ops and marketplaces are going to be the, the thing that opens it up across scale. That bell means it's quitting time. I hope you've got a cold one ready to crack or something rolled up, burrito or other. Make sure you're subscribed for the next episode of Rolled Up wherever you get your podcast.